Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 46. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 34. And again, we have a nice, big, long, it's this actually one of the shorter genealogies. We will read through it. We won't talk about every bit of it. Um, but remember, these things are there for a reason. Um, and I understand that it's hard to find anything immediately applicable when you read these things. But they, these are here uh, for a reason we'll get into in the sermon. So Genesis 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemiel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Koath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Onan Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yab, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esban, Eri, Eridai, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Sarah, their sister. The sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, uh, Ashbel, and Gera, Na um, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, 
Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up, to, go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all they have, that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, guide us to trust you and see life as a journey of discovery, discovering your mercy every step of the way. For it is in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. What we see here is that Israel and his sons are on a journey to mercy. God's covenant with his people is merciful, which causes them to trust his faithfulness. To trust in faithfulness is to trust God in the future. Now, one time I saw a story about all these great football stars that were recruited out of college. They came into the NFL. They started making tons of money, money like they'd never seen before, and they end up leaving the NFL broke. Why is that? They didn't have any trust in a God whose future is guaranteed by his faithfulness. They thought, I had the money, I've got to spend it now because I may never see it again. And it's sad. Well, what does faith in God's covenant mercy, which is really a future-oriented faith, what does that look like? Faith in God's covenant mercy is a journey to confidence, to joy, and to protection. First, it's a journey to confidence. God's faithfulness to us in Christ should cause us to trust him with our future. First of all, in verse one, we see Jacob's confidence in God. He took his journey 
So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. Seems like God is always sending his people on journeys of some kind or another. We truly are pilgrims. You know, thinking about Thanksgiving and all. And they were pilgrims too. If you read my article, the devotion in the paper is a lot about that history and God's amazing providence there. But this is a case of where the apple doesn't fall too far from the trees. Look at Abraham when God called him. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Set him on a journey. At least Jacob knew where he was going. Abraham didn't even know where he was going at that time, but he did it anyway. And there, he, Jacob offers sacrifices, and notice this wording, to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, it's not that, when I say there's a future orientation to our faith, that does not mean that you don't look at the past and take both sides into the present right now to inform your prayer life, to inform your decisions. Because God makes this promise. He is a covenant-keeping God, and his covenant, his, which symbolizes his bond that's inside his heart, he makes it external in the covenant so that you can know that he's not only for you, he is for the generations that come after you. Look at Isaiah 59, 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's basic modus operandi. His way of working. In the evangelical world, we think it's only through evangelistic events and Billy Graham on TV and other events that God wants to grow his church. No, the actual normal way that God grows his church, the ordinary, the, the most common way he does is through families. This verse tells you that. But it also applies to anybody that you come into contact with. That if you can help them to see God's word and he, the words he's put in your mouth, if you stand on this promise, it's not an absolute guarantee because God is God and there's some things in, in his mystery. But generally, which means most of the time, 99% of the time, with, not without exceptions, he's going to do this not only in your generation, but in the generation that comes after you and the generation that comes after that and the generation that comes after that, that's God's normal way of growing his kingdom, his primary way. And God is instilling confidence in Jacob in verses two through four. Um, look at what God says. He calls, he spoke to Israel in visions of the night. God spoke to Jacob in a special way because Jacob was the covenant head at this time, okay? Even though we've talked about Jesus, Joseph in a sort of savior role like Jesus, Jacob is actually the true covenant head of his family. And therefore, he gets special communication. Now, it's kind of a 
odd thing for us, you know, the visions of the night. What in the world was that? And what was it like? And you think, boy, if God did that for me, I really would never doubt again. That's not true. <laughs> this is what makes you not doubt. This and God's spirit working in and through this is what makes you not doubt. But look at what, what uh, the writer to the Hebrews says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In this sense, jo Jacob is acting as a prophet. He is a prophet. But in these last days, he has spoken to us how? By his son. That's why we don't, I don't think the Bible teaches that there are any more of these things going on. So people that get on TV and say they had this vision from God and God told them this and God told them that, the writer of Hebrews says, the final word is his son. Because God is not willy-nilly just giving visions and speaking to people. He is doing it toward this very thing, his son. And his son has come and is coming again. So the focus now in the time that we live in is between the son's first coming and his second coming. So we focus on the son, not on some weird vision or whatever somebody says that they have. And God spoke in promises based on history. Look at verses three through four. He said here, uh, he said, I am the God of your father. You see how God strengthens this through families? I am the God of your father. And then based on that, you're supposed to, he's supposed to think of all that God has done through Isaac and through Abraham. And based on that backlog of history, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. Look at what uh, God said to Moses when he called him from the burning bush. When the Lord saw that he, meaning Moses, turned aside to see, meaning the burning bush, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's constantly basing everything on the history of his faithfulness in the past so that you can trust him with your future right now where you live. Jesus put it like this. At, uh, by the way, this is when a group of guys that didn't believe in the resurrection, they gave them this problem that they thought would stump Jesus, you know. Uh, this woman, you know, she was married to a guy and then he died and she married another one and he died and on and on up to seven husbands she had. So Jesus, whose wife is she gonna be in the resurrection? that we don't believe in. And Jesus says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said, meaning God's word, what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And get this, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. That means he's saying that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are still living. They're still living, very consciously aware of him and of God. Just not in bodily form at this point. But like we say in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's not just Jesus, that's us. Body and soul together in a new body. 
You can trust him with your future. Now, so there is Jacob gaining confidence and now acting in confidence. Verses five through 27. We won't go through every one of those verses. But first, you see that Jacob bears fruit in this and the ability to let go and to leave behind. You think about, especially in those days. Now, you think it's a hard thing to move today. Think about when you, you, like you had to move everything, including the house itself, you know, everything, or just leave it there to just rot away because they didn't have like a real estate market back then, okay? All right, and, and so he's able to do this because there is a trust he has as God's demonstra- in God's demonstrated trustworthiness. You look at, look at verse five at the beginning there, then Jacob set out from Beersheba, right? Verse six, they also took their livestock um, with them. I'm sorry, go down towards the end. Um, he, so he took with them, he came into Egypt uh, with, uh, with uh, Jacob and all his offspring with him and so on. And then verse seven. And what you see in verse five is Jacob set out from Beersheba the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father. In verse six, um, Jacob and all his offspring. And in verse seven, his sons and his son's sons with him and his daughters and his daughters, um, his son's daughters. And what you see there, it forms what is called an inclusio. You have sons at the beginning, you have sons at the end. And that's meant to give you the interpretive guide of what that verse means. And what that means, if you go back to Genesis 9, which is based on Genesis 1.28, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why? Because you can have confidence in the God of your future. And not only did they bring sons, but in the end of verse five and the beginning of verse six, they bring everything else. As well. And so we see an enacting of confidence in that and the ability to let go and to leave behind and an acting of confidence in entrusting future generations in hope. And that's what all these names mean in verses 8 through 27. There's a naming and a numbering going on. And of course, we see the names there, right? I don't have to go through all of them. It's all through those verses. And then there's a numbering. You know, verse 15, Leah had 18. Uh, Zilpah, who was given to Leah, had 22. Rachel had 25. These are not just hers, but her grandchildren as well. And then Bilhah was given to Rachel, uh, 26. And then in verse, uh, I'm sorry, and that was in verse 25. And in verses 26 to 27 is the total number. Notice also among there, there are, first of all, there's mention of daughters. And there are two daughters named. In that process. Now, what is God saying there? Well, Joel prophesies that in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on your sons and your daughters. You move from circumcision as the sign of the covenant to baptism as the sign of the covenant of grace in the New Testament. Well, guess what? Girls can receive baptism too. What you have is a picture of a future 
of an ever-flourishing, ever-enriching, ever-expanding kingdom. That God had had this in mind all along, even though he set up male headship. That women, you are included too. You don't look at headship as a means of saying you're X'd out of the kingdom, that you don't have a significant role. Because we're talking about complement. Complementarity, not competition. And when we make roles equal, we set up competition. And look at the divorce rate in this country now, ever since that came into play. By the way, just because there's male headship, but our headship is different than the way the world would ever think of enacting power. So anybody that has trouble with male headship, they don't understand the God of Scripture at all because Christ is the head of the church. Does anyone have a problem? Does any Christian have a problem that Christ is your husband and the church is his bride? I don't think so. I don't think so. If you do, you might not be a Christian and you're destined for hell because you're in the outs with God. You're not on the ends. And being on the ends, by the way, doesn't make us any better. We are chosen and lifted up and washed by Christ. So it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with his love and his kindness. So, so there's this entrusting of these future generations. And what God is saying in this genealogy is this is how committed I am to this project, not me. Meaning God is saying, I am committed. I am way more committed than you could ever imagine, more than you could ever be to me. And he said it right from the beginning, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He put it right there, right at the fall. He said, I am reclaiming people for myself that don't deserve it, that don't have a claim on me, I'll claim them. God's faithfulness to us in Christ should cause us to trust him with our future. Look at Acts, uh, Peter picks this up in Acts uh, 2, 37 through 39. He is preaching to the gathered the international gathering of Jews at Pentecost. And they were all hearing him preach in their language. Okay? That was the gift of tongues. And Peter says this. Oh, well, first of all, uh, after he preached, this is the reaction. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to, uh, and the rest, and, and, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They saw the danger. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, get this, the promise is for you and for your children and all who were far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise isn't just for you individually as a Christian. It's for the children that come from your various marriage unions. Claim that promise. That's what our job is. 
That's why when we baptize children, we don't talk to the child. That's correct. We talk to the parents. And then we talk to the whole congregation and say, are you going to be committed to raising this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? That means you're going to be active in doing that. Not just going, oh, good, they're baptized. I just want to let them make the choice. Yeah, you do want them to make a choice, but you better give them enough information that they can make a real choice. But God wants that. You see, this is God's norm. You can pray based on this. You can talk to your children and your grandchildren based on this. They're connected to you. You're connected to him. Therefore, he has an interest in them. And anyone else that you come across. Okay, so God's covenant with his people is merciful, which causes them, when they see that mercy, to trust in his faithfulness to them. His bond is not just here today, gone tomorrow. He's not a cohabitating God where he moves in, into the house with no commitments. No, you're married. He ain't walking out. You'll try to walk out so many times and he'll go, mm-mm, let's talk. Mm-mm, let's talk. And he also do that with your children and your grandchildren. So what does faith in God's covenant mercy look like? Faith in God's covenant mercy is a journey to confidence, as we've just seen, and it's also a journey to joy, verses 28 through 30. God's faithfulness in Christ should settle us in the promise of a joyous future. Don't, we can be sad, by the way, about things, that's for sure, but not in the way the world is. We ultimately have a picture of a future that we're heading to that is joyous. By the way, that's what makes us see the pain that we go through now because we really do know it's not supposed to be that way because it's based on the joyous future. And that joyous future lets you rest. Look at what Jacob does with Judah of all people. Now, he delegates leadership to Judah in verse 28. Verse 28, the very beginning, he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph. Judah. Now, Judah had some natural gifts. He was probably the wisest one of the bunch, right? And he came up with the idea of selling Joseph into slavery, not killing him. Boy, think about right now where they are in this famine, how, what uh, a moment in time that actually, that one little thing, when they were just gonna leave him in the pit, and he just said, no, 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 wait a minute. Hey, guys, look, he's our own flesh and blood. Let's not kill him. I mean, I agree with you. We need to get rid of him. Let's sell him to these guys over here, right? But Judah has been broken down. He has seen the light. And so Jacob's freedom is, is that he doesn't have to be, even though he is the head, he doesn't have to always be in charge. He can delegate some of those things. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 about us as a congregation, for the body does not consider, um, does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot shall say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, 
that would not make it any less a part of the body. So not everyone can be up here preaching. Doesn't make mean that I have more of a stake in this than you do. In your roles, in your places, in your families, at your workplaces, you have a role too. So we have Jacob's freedom and we have Judah's proven ability. It says there in verse 28, he sent him there to show the way before him to Goshen and they came into the land of Goshen. Proven ability. And he's able to pat his son on the back that he did it. You know, Paul had this falling out with this kid named Mark who left him at a critical time and under persecution. But look at what Paul tells Timothy to do. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in my ministry. Same thing. Judah had some bad things that he did. But in the end, he came back and Paul celebrated that. And Jacob allows, uh, he allows that earned confidence. They came into the land of Goshen. Psalm 90, verse 17, which was written by Moses, you know, uh, just like the book we're reading, Genesis, says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That is what Jacob is praising in Judah by letting him do this. Establishing the work of God's hand in that family. And then we see in the next scene, tangible bonds. Verses 29 through 30. There is a weeping that is coming from deep joy in verse 29. First of all, in verse 29 at the beginning, there's a formal honor that Joseph gives his father. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. That's the formal honor. But then there's the informal honor where he just lets it all out. And I love, I just love this verse. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck. And this part is what I really love. And wept on his neck a good while. Mm. Thinking about all that they've been through and he's finally seeing him again after all those years for the first time. It's very much uh, this whole thing of falling on neck and weeping when Jacob ran into Esau for the first time and he was scared, but Esau ran to meet him, just 33, four, ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And then Jacob has, talks about his death marking his fullness of joy. It's, there is a present mark in his heart. First of all, in verse 30, in the beginning, now let me die since I have seen your face. It's a perfect tense, since I have seen, which means it's a completed action. In other words, he's taken it and has took it all in. And he's going, I can die now in peace. I've seen your face. But he's taking it into his heart, into the future, much like Mary pondered these things, right? When Jesus was born, verse, the end of verse 30, and know that you are still alive. He's just taking it. I'm going to take this with me to my grave. I'm so happy. Genesis 33:10. Jacob does the same thing with Esau. When Esau tries to give him a gift, he says, no, please, I have found, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present uh, from my hand, for I have seen your face. 
which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. Think of all how we know people by looking at their faces. And this is how Paul describes our future joy. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but what? But then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. God's faithfulness to us in Christ should settle us in the promise of a joyous future. So God's covenant with his people is merciful, which causes them to trust and go on this journey of mercy because of his complete faithfulness. What does God, what does faith in God's mercy look like? Faith in God's mercy looks, uh, in God's covenant mercy is a journey to confidence, to joy, and finally to protection. And that's really where the joy comes from, isn't it? We don't have to be looking over our shoulder. God's faithfulness in Christ should lead us to the boldness of a protected future. First of all, we see leadership preparation, verses 31 through 32. Joseph is informing his family. Um, and he talks about, think about the grace that Joseph is showing here to his brothers. Joseph said to his brothers, he's on speaking terms with them. After all this, he's still on speaking terms. Think about Jesus, what he does for us in our relationship with God. And then there's a clarity in communication. And trust me, communication clarity is so hard. But it engenders trust. Just like when Jesus was questioned by the high priest about his disciples' teaching, and Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I'm not hiding this. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews have come together. I have said nothing in secret. Makes you want to trust him more. Not hiding things. Not hiding information that could be helpful to you. And then you have Joseph informing Pharaoh in verses 31 toward the end of it to verse 32. First of all, he has family pride. He is not ashamed of his family. My brother, my brothers and my father's household have come to me. I am identified with them. It's like Jesus identifies with us. And then he prepares the context for their protection. And believe it or not, it's because they're shepherds. <laughs> There's a gracious separation. See, God is setting them up in Egypt to not fail. Now you go, what in the world are you talking about? Well, he ends uh, with a diplomatic pro protocol telling the brothers, this is what he'll say. Pharaoh will ask you this and this is what you are to say. And, he go, and this is how it's going down. This is what you say. And then he gets to sowing God's jealous seeds. And God is a jealous God. He's jealous for us. He does not want our hearts wandering all over the place. First of all, he sows those seeds by, they're not to get in Pharaoh's face. You use the title, we're your servants. And guess what? We're shepherds and we've been shepherds from our youth. And being a shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. They don't wanna hang out with shepherds for some reason. Maybe because they stink, I don't know. They're wandering around in the desert and they get dirty. I don't know what it was about shepherds and Egyptians, but 
what this separation is, is really a special place. God is trying to say, I don't want you mixing with these people in their religion. I want you with me. I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous for you. And I will enact that jealousy. And I'll set you up for success. Now, they didn't end up going that way. As we saw in the, well, as you know about the golden calf situation. They were actually worshiping an Egyptian God when they did that. But nonetheless, it wasn't because God set them up for failure. He made it so they wouldn't mingle with the Egyptians at the beginning. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 6, 14 through 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. That's how jealous he is. It's a good thing that he's jealous. You don't want him indifferent, do you? Our jealousy is a little different because it's based on partial knowledge and we tend to fly off with that knowledge instead of investigating. But God has all knowledge. So he ain't flying off on anything. Everything he does is just. Even his anger that gets kindled against us. Now, fortunately, or I should say blessedly under Christ, if his anger gets kindled against us, it's a disciplinary anger. Not an anger that will cut you off from the face of the earth. Why? Because he did that to Jesus. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's how we should have been. But he did it to Jesus instead of us. So God's faithfulness to us in Christ should lead us to the boldness of a protected future, a present boldness, a present settledness, a present certainty, absolute certainty that this is all true. It's not humble to doubt God. It really isn't. It's the opposite. It is pride. You think you know better than God? You think you have more knowledge than him who is omniscient? No. Now, we certainly struggle and we don't understand everything and God's given us the Psalms. 75% of the Psalms are laments, but they're directing the lament, the complaint to the Lord. And we do it to the Lord because we know in our heart of hearts it's not right. But God says, look, work it out with me. Let's reason together. I'm for you and I'm with you. I'll bring you through it. So, in conclusion, you know that verse about a future and a hope? God gives you? Well, what is hope based on? It's based on history. God's past performance is the greatest predictor of his future. But God adds another thing. His word. And his word is a word of promise. Of promise and making good on those promises. Promise and deliverance. Look at the whole context. We like to quote, um, which verses? I always forget. Uh, Yeah, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. But let's look at the context. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, meaning the years that you're supposed to go into exile, towards the end of Israel's history, they had to go into exile in Babylon, and God sent them there. Okay? Because they had been unfaithful in Israel, and he's disciplining them, and he tells them, to actually pray for the prosperity of Babylon. He says, and look at what he says. 
even after they've been unfaithful to him, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. Past performance. Greatest predictor. So now you can know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Future and hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart because I'm a jealous God. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes, all the losses you've gone through. I will restore them and gather you from all the nations and all the places for where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you and I will come back and you'll be able to be with me and with my father. A future and a hope. You see, you can trust God with your future and you can rest secured absolutely in that future. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, remind our hearts that even though we go through exile living in this world. We still live in trust of your authority, in trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on our behalf, and in your Spirit's loving power to keep us focused in repenting of our sins and turning to faith in Jesus over and over again, not for salvation like the initial time, but for continuing to journey toward your mercy, that you will take away these sins and you will continue to build us up in walking in newness of life and discovering more and more of your mercy each step of the way. For it is in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.